Turning Point presents the Jeremiah Study Bible, drawing on more than 40 years of study by Dr. David Jeremiah. Take your personal Bible study deeper with unique introductions to each book of the Bible. 55 full-page articles exploring the essential themes of the Christian life. 8,000 study notes with insightful and practical content, an extensive cross-reference system, and helpful sidebars that extend to topics beyond the study notes. You can also take advantage of online resources available to you at jeremiahstudybible.com. Great for individual or small group studies, this Bible is available in the New King James and New International versions in standard or large print, as well as the English Standard Version in standard print with several cover options. For more information or to order your copy, go to davidjeremiah.ca jsb. That's davidjeremiah.ca jsb. From unstable employment to unsafe neighborhoods, no wonder so many people live in the grip of fear. If you're one of them, take heart. You're not helpless. Today on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah turns to the 34th Psalm and shares four things you can do when you feel afraid. From his series, Making Sense of It All, here's David to introduce today's message, Facing Our Fears with Faith. Well, you know, there's so many wonderful truths that are found in the book of Psalms. And there's so many Psalms, hardly anybody ever starts at the beginning and teaches their way through 150 Psalms. That would take a long time. It's one of the longest books in the Bible. But it's a wonderful place to visit from time to time. And I try to do that not only in my own personal life, but also uh, in the teaching of the Word of God that I do at Shadow Mountain and here on Turning Point. Uh, someone once said that there are more tears shed on the pages of the book of Psalms than any other portion of the Bible. I can't verify that, but it does make sense to me because it's the Psalms to which we turn when we're going through difficult times, when we don't know what to do, and we're looking for something that will give us direction and help and and uh, consolation, too. We're looking for something that will make us understand that we're not alone and we're not the first ones to have traveled this road. Uh, Psalm 34, Psalm 37, Psalm 1, Psalm 142, Psalm 138, Psalm 121, you name it. There are just so many Psalms that are encouraging. And uh, today we're going to open our Bibles to Psalm 34, and we're going to talk about what it means to face our fears with faith. We'll do that in just a moment. First of all, I hope you're enjoying Turning Point on the radio and exploring the possibility of joining us on television every day. We now have some new places where Turning Point is available. On the History Channel, uh, in the early schedule, you will find us there every day, Monday through Friday. We're, of course, on TBN and Daystar and many other of the Christian networks. We're, believe it or not, we're on the Cowboy Channel. And the Cowboy Channel is one of the most uh, responsive uh, stations that we have. So many people watch us on the Cowboy Channel. Well, if you're looking for a place that gives you all the places where we are, you can go to our website, and there's a station finder there that will help you locate the stations that feed your area, and we encourage you to join us. Right now, it's time for us to get into our discussion of Psalm 34. So let's begin. Open your Bibles to the 34th Psalm, Psalm 34. I want to talk with you about facing our fears 
with faith. This is a fearful world in which we live, isn't it? These are difficult times. It's fearful just listening to the news, watching the news channels any given day. All the things that could happen. I remember hearing about a summer night during a violent thunderstorm when a mother was tucking her small boy into bed. She was about to turn off the light when he asked her with a tremor in his voice, Mommy, will you sleep with me tonight? The mother smiled and gave him a reassuring hug. She said, I can't, honey. I have to sleep with your daddy. There's a long silence broken at last by his shaky little voice, the big sissy. I don't know about you, but sometimes when you look at the formidable things that are happening around us, you can turn into a big sissy pretty quickly. There is really no feeling in the world that I can compare the icy grip of fear. I read the book that was written by Max Licato called Fearless. In this book, he paints the picture of our fearful generation. He said, each sunrise seems to bring fresh reasons for fear. They're talking layoffs at work, slowdowns in the economy, flare-ups in the Middle East, turnovers at headquarters, turn-downs in the housing market, upswings in global warming, breakouts of Al-Qaeda cells. Some demented dictator is collecting nuclear warheads the way others collect fine wines. A strain of Asian flu is boarding flights out of China. The plague of our day, terrorism, begins with the word terror. We are fearful of being sued, of finishing last, of going broke. We fear the mole on our back, the new kid on the block, the sound of the clock as it ticks closer to the grave. We sophisticate investment plans, create elaborate security systems, and legislate stronger military. And yet today we depend on mood-altering drugs more than any generation in history. According to one study that Licato did in his book, ordinary children today are more fearful than psychiatric patients were in the 1950s. And as most of you know, fear is no respecter of people. Fear is not a private domain of the weak. It strikes at the best of us. It does not restrict itself to the individual, but sometimes it can be transmitted to others. It is most dangerous, especially for the Christian, in its ability to slap handcuffs and shackles on us and keep us from the things that God wants us to do, bound up in a prison of frustration and hopelessness. In this prison, God can actually become the perceived enemy instead of the deliverer. Now, of course, we all know that fear in itself is not bad. Fear is a gift from God designed to give our bodies the sudden bursts of strength and speed that we need in times of emergency. But when fear becomes a permanent condition, it can paralyze the spirit It can keep us from taking the risks of generosity and love and vulnerability that characterize citizens of God's kingdom. How many of us have discovered that in times of fear and anxiety, we usually find ourselves opening our Bible and turning to the Psalms? It just happens to be the place where we have been before at such times. 
And there is no better place to turn in the Bible when you are afraid than to the Psalms. In the Psalms, we have mostly the writings of David, who not only recorded for us his praise and his prayers, but went out of his way in his discussions with the Lord to give us understanding of the situations that were going on in his own life. I've often thought that the book of Psalms is more like a journal than it is anything else. It is David's entries in every day, what's happening in his life, and then he reflects it back to God. Now, in the Psalms, there are 14 different Psalms which are introduced by words that link that particular psalm to some particular event in the life of the psalmist. We find the connection of these words very helpful to us if we want to understand the meaning of the psalm. For instance, in Psalm 34, if you will look right under the title, right under the word 34, you will notice in most of our Bibles they have this ascription. A psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech who drove him away, and he departed. Now that's put there to help us understand the scenario in which David found himself when he wrote the words we're about to study. The psalmist, we are told, was in a situation, a particular situation, and we can go back to 1 Samuel chapters 21 and 22 and the surrounding chapters, and we can recover that moment in David's life. Once we do that, Psalm 34 takes on a whole new meaning. Now we understand what David was going through. We understand his fear when he wrote these words. Now for many of you, this will be an unnecessary review, but for all of us, so that we can be on the same page, let me take you back and set the stage for why this psalm was written. As many of you know, when King David was just a boy, a teenager, King Saul was the most powerful man in his nation. When the nation of Israel was challenged by the Philistines to send out a warrior to fight against Goliath, no one, including King Saul, volunteered for that assignment. You see, Goliath was somewhere between 9 foot 6 and 10 feet tall who championed the Philistine army. He had challenged the Israelites to send out their best warrior And they would have it out once and for all. This was going to be a war of economy. One man against another. Whoever wins, the whole war is over. If Goliath won, the Israelites would be their servants. And if the warrior of Israel won, the Philistines would serve the Israelites. Now, unfortunately, Israel couldn't find a candidate for this role. No one wanted to volunteer for the opportunity to be a hero. None of the soldiers of the Israeli army stepped up. And even King Saul, who we now know from reading behind the scenes, was one of the tallest men of Israel. Even King Saul wanted nothing to do with it. So on a particular day, as you remember, David shows up at the front bringing some food from home to give to his soldier brothers. And he walks in on the discussion about why nobody's going to go out and fight Goliath. This has to be one of the funniest moments in Jewish history. When diminutive David walks in and volunteers to go out and meet the giant, I was watching one of the early morning news shows, and they had on the Guinness World Records tallest man in the world, and he was eight foot something. 
when he stood up, he just kept standing up. I mean, he was huge. Goliath was a foot taller than him. I couldn't get over just thinking about that. And you can't blame them. I mean, don't be too hard on the Israelites. Don't even be too hard on Saul. I mean, why? I mean, that's just, you know, who wants to sign up to die today? That's pretty much what it was like. But David walks in in his innocent bravery with his little bag full of food for his brothers, and he says, I'll do it. They try to talk him out of it, but he won't have it. And so they decide if he's going to go out and fight the giant, he better put on Saul's armor. Second funniest moment in Jewish history. <laughs> Saul was probably 6'5". David was probably 5'2". Saul was 240. David was 130. <laughs> and it didn't take him long to figure out that Saul's armor was not going to be an asset. So in essence, David walks out to meet the giant with nothing other than five stones, a slingshot, and the promise of Almighty God. And you know the story. One stone and Goliath was defeated. David comes back into camp carrying his head, and he becomes the instant folk hero of the entire nation. So far, so good. But the women of Israel get involved in the celebration. And according to 1 Samuel 18, 7, the women sang a song as they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And verse 8 of the same chapter says, And Saul was very angry, and the song displeased him greatly. They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed only thousands. What more can David have but the kingdom? And here's the key. So Saul eyed David from that day forward. He wasn't admiring him. He eyed him. That means he watched him for the opportunity to take him out. The hatred that Saul had for David out of the jealousy that instead of acknowledging him was so strong that Saul determined the only way he could survive was to kill David. For the next several years, David lived on the run, always looking over at his shoulder, always moving his family from this place to that place, never being able to relax and feel safe because around the next corner might be one of Saul's archers one of his executioners. Finally, after living like this for many months, David did a foolish thing. Up until this time, he had walked in obedience. Even though he was running from Saul, he felt like God was with him. And you read that part of the Old Testament, you see that David had a lot of experiences, but God was always a part of it. But one day, David got up and decided to take things into his own hands. And before you look at me like, why would he do that? We've all been there and done that, haven't we? Someone has said that fatigue makes cowards of us all. David was tired, and at this particular point, he makes this bad decision. He takes things into his own hands, and here's what he did. He decided that if he was going to get any rest from the pursuing Saul and his army, the only place he would be safe would be in the camp of Israel's enemies. So David goes to the Philistines and tries to hide out on the other side. Now, he chooses as his place of hiding a city by the name of Gath. Here is the beginning of the stupidity that often is a part of our lives when we get out of fellowship with God. When we get out of fellowship with God, we can do some really stupid things. 
David decides to go to Gath and hang out. Does Gath register with anyone? Gath was the hometown of Goliath. It's where he grew up. On the way to Gath, David's hungry, and he stops in a little village, the village of Nob, in order to get some food. And while he is there, he asks them if they have any weapons, because he doesn't have any weapons. And they said, yeah, we only have one weapon. The high priest told him that the only weapon he knew about was the sword of Goliath, which had been kept as a trophy of David's victory. And David took Goliath's sword and headed for Gath. You talk about a death wish. And it didn't take very long for the citizens of Gath to figure out who was in their midst. They put two and two together and they realized that the man who had slain their giant was right there in their midst. Here's what the record says in 1 Samuel 21. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David the king of the land? Did they not sing of him to one another in dances saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Quite interesting, the hit parade in Israel had made it to Philistia. How about that? Now David took these words to heart. I think that's one of the understatements of the Bible. If you were David, wouldn't you have taken those words to heart? Is this not David? And he was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So David changed his behavior before them pretended madness in their hands, scratched on the door of the gate and let his saliva fall down on his beard. And Achish said to his servants, Look, you see the man is insane. Why have you brought him to me? Have I need of madmen that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow actually come into my house? So David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. Now go back to Psalm 34 and let's read that ascription again. A psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech who drove him away and he departed. This psalm was written by David right after this experience. And by the way, don't be confused by the interchange of the terms Abimelech and Achish. Abimelech is a term which is like the term Pharaoh. So Achish was the Abimelech of Philistia. He was the Pharaoh, and those two words are not in conflict with each other. Now, it's not hard to imagine how frightening it must have been for David when he realized that he was surrounded by the Philistines who hated him. In his mind, he thought he was dead. You talk about fear. Now he has escaped through acting like he had gone out of his mind. And he runs to this cave called the Cave of Adullam. And there for at least a while he is alone before his family and his brothers join him. He's tired of living out of a suitcase He'd been anointed king, and he hadn't had one single day of actually being king yet. Fifteen years transpired from his first anointing until the time that he became king. He's frustrated, he's discouraged, and fearful, and out of that experience, he produces the words of Psalm 34. I wish I could teach every word of this psalm, because every word is important. But since we're talking about fear today, let me just touch on the principles that deal with that subject. What does David do at this moment in his life that I can do? 
that you can do when we're tempted to be afraid? Well, the first thing he does is almost counterintuitive. It almost is a disconnect. When we are afraid, we can offer up our praise to God. Verses 1 through 3, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Many of the great praise songs that we sing are right out of this psalm. You know this one? I will bless the Lord at all times. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Right out of the scripture. That's why we love to sing it. Obviously, you don't know it. <laughs> well, David walks into this cave and he begins to sing praise to God. He moves from the pain of his life to the praise of his lips. And if you underline your Bible, you will notice that there are five different phrases here to describe his first response to fear. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul boasts in the Lord. Oh, magnify the Lord and exalt his name together. David says he will bless the Lord at all times and his praise will be continually in his mouth. Now, how many of you know it's easy to sing a song in the day of prosperity? It's a totally different thing to sing a song in the night of adversity. But David will sing his song in the night of adversity. And notice it says, and his song will be in his mouth. He sings out loud. Not just a song in his heart. That's okay. David sings his song out loud. He's singing his song out loud to God. I wonder what that sounded like in the cave. Did you ever sing in a cave? Whoa. Good or bad, you hear yourself. <laughs> so the Bible says he recovers from this moment of terror and fear. His heart is still pounding. He's still realizing that he's escaped by the skin of his teeth, that he should be dead. And out of his love for the Lord, out of the fear of his heart, he begins to sing praise to God. You know, it's a courageous thing to sing praise to the Lord when we don't feel like it. Mostly when we're afraid, we don't feel like singing to the Lord. To begin to lift up his name when we are cast down. But the courage of obedience at this point may be the most important principle I have ever learned about dealing with the difficult moods and modes of life. Sometimes we have to do what we do out of obedience and watch how the Lord takes that and turns everything around for us. Sometimes we have to say, Lord, I'm going to worship you today, and I do not feel like worshiping you, but here I go. One of the reasons we are so blessed in this generation is that we can carry worship and the means of worship around with us wherever we go, in our CDs, in our cars, in our iPods, now in our phones, we're never away from the opportunity to plug in to some worship song that we know that honors the Lord and begin to lift up his name in praise. My suggestion to you in your fearful moments when your anxiety starts to reach its fingers out and clutch at your heart, find some praise music that has meant something to you in the past, something that you know well, 
and just begin to sing it. Whether you're a good singer or not, lift your voice up in joyful praise to the Lord. Sing along with the singers on the CD. Praise the name of God. Amen. We know this, don't we? If we've walked with the Lord for very long, we know this is something we should do. It is really hard to do sometimes because most of the time when you should do it, that's the time when you feel like doing it the least. And um, I think part of that is just our being able to command our body to do what it may not want to do. You have to say to yourself, self, I'm going to sing. And yourself will say, I don't feel like singing. I'm really down today. Well, I'm, I'm going to sing anyway. Don't let your body speak to you. You speak to it. You you take control. You initiate. And, and you, once you begin, and maybe you'll need a track or someone on on CD to help you get started, once you begin to praise the Lord, you'll see why the Bible always talks about that. It's in passage after passage, almost to the point where it's embarrassing because you don't want to keep bringing it up. Every sermon, you could say something about it. The power of praise. When you're afraid, when you're going through difficult times, I love music and I thank God for him having given me this tremendous love for music because music is uh, so, so encouraging. You know, I have to tell you, this has nothing to do with today's sermon, but I think you'll appreciate it. I used to get up in the morning and um, sit and talk with Donna, and periodically before we finished, we'd turn on the news to see what was happening. We don't do that anymore. We have um, the music channels, and we've found one that has soothing music, and we listen to it, and we've discovered the difference. God has programmed us to listen to the notes of his tunes, his music. So do it today. For more information on Dr. Jeremiah's current series, Making Sense of It All, please visit our website where you'll also find two free ways to help you stay connected, our monthly magazine turning points and our daily email devotional. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. Or call us at 800-946-4300. When you do, ask for your copy of Robert J. Morgan's book of comfort and encouragement. God works all things together for your good. It's yours for a gift of any amount. You can also download the free Turning Point mobile app for your smartphone or tablet, or search in your app store for the keywords Turning Point Ministries to access our programs and resources. Get all the details when you visit our website, davidjeremiah.ca radio. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us tomorrow as we continue the series, Making Sense of It All, here on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. Legacy. When I think about my life and the legacy I will leave behind one day, I remember the legacy of faith I saw in the lives of my parents, and it is now reflected in the lives of my children and grandchildren. Then I reflect upon the calling God placed on my heart to preach and teach, and I think of the people who have been touched around the world through the ministry of Turning Point. Each of us will leave a legacy. Have you ever wondered what your legacy will be? In addition to the legacy that will be entrusted to your family, perhaps you have considered leaving your imprint on something with eternal consequences. Many people don't think beyond this life. They live only for today with no hope beyond the grave. But for the believer, 
We not only have an eternal perspective on life today, we want to leave behind a testimony of our faith so that others may come to know Christ as well. Long after you and I finish our time on this earth, Turning Point will continue to bring the unchanging Word of God to an ever-changing world. There is still so much work to do. Will you join me in this very important effort? What will your legacy be?